Well, thank you, band. Vocalists, appreciate that. Uh, man, I really enjoyed the uh, song selection today. It was really important for me to sing the songs that we did. Hey, we're going to be looking at Matthew's Gospel. If you want to get your Bible or New Testament and open it up to the first book in the New Testament, we'll be in Matthew's Gospel, the 21st chapter, as we look at uh, the things that transpired on Palm Sunday. So we'll be picking up in the first verse, and uh, if you go ahead and get there, you'll be ready when we get there. We have been for several weeks now on a hunt for good news. And so every time we've been opening the gospel, we have been saying, okay, what is good news and what we're reading right now and what we're hearing right now? We're going to do that again today. So as we talk through the 21st chapter, uh, ask yourself, so is there good news in here? What's the good news here? All right? And we'll try to get that at the end when we wrap it up. So when you are uh, trying to figure out, is this or that in my life functioning properly? How do you get at determining that? How do you get at assessing and evaluating that? The thing is, when we try to determine if something is functioning properly or not, is that we typically have a number of little grids or filters through which we look at something and uh, almost instantaneously, unless we didn't get enough sleep the night before, almost instantaneously, we are running an assessment and an evaluation and we can tell you, yeah, that's pretty good or no, that's not too good. For example, how's your car? See, immediately a little grid pops up in your head and you're like, okay, well, is it, it's starting pretty well right now. It drives pretty smoothly right now. It's, you know, the gas mileage is uh, pretty good right now. Uh, it's good. I'm happy with it. What if we said, how is your team? Whether it's a sports team, a work team, a community service team. See, immediately it pops up, okay, do we have, you know, the talent happening in the right place, in the right kind of way? Is there a sense of togetherness and cohesiveness and collaboration? Are we getting the desired outcomes that we want with this team? And if all those are kind of in the affirmative, going, you know, the, the, the team is pretty good right now. How about family? Immediately, well, am I communicating with my spouse? Do my kids talk to me? You know, how's the communication thing? How's the intimacy? How close are we with one another right now? And if that's in place, you kind of quickly say, yeah, it's pretty good. So, how's life? See, when I said that, some of you in five seconds had an answer. Some of you needed about 15 or 20. Some of you are still pondering and the hard drive is still worrying. <laughs> What's in your grid, what's in your filter to determine whether life is good or not? Overwhelmingly, for most Americans, the, the grid, the filter, is a circumstantial one. It's something like happiness. Do I feel happy or not? For others, it's the matter of success. Do I feel successful or not? For still others, it's a sense of connection. Do I feel lonely or do I feel like there are people that care about me? And those filters are important. Those experiences in our lives are important. The Bible has a lot to say about all of those. But I want to suggest to you 
that as it was with all the previous things that we did a quick assessment and evaluation on, there is a superficial level of looking at things, cars, teams, families, even life. And then there is a more substantive level at which to think about these things and assess these things and examine these things. And so, though, how's life? And I run that through the grid of happiness or success or connection is significant. It's not unimportant. It is somewhat superficial. Simply because it's based upon circumstance. There is a more significant, a more substantive grid or filter through which we answer that question, how's life? And that actually comes out of the person of Jesus. Jesus gave us that grid and that filter, and that's what we're going to find in Matthew 21. And so this would be the time where you open the passage that you found, and we engage in reading it together. And as we talk about it, I'm going to encourage you to just keep your Bible open the whole time and keep making reference to what we're talking about as we move right down through the 21st chapter. And the first thing that we're going to encounter is that one of those grids, one of those filters that we want to begin to assess and evaluate life around is the matter of humility. Let's talk about that after we look at the text. So in chapter 21, beginning with verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem, Jesus and some of those that have uh, been following him and become a part of a, a rather extended entourage, They approached Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell him, The Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now this took place, verse 4, to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet. And this is what Zechariah had said hundreds of years before. Verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them. And Jesus sat on them, and a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Shaken, disturbed, if you will. And they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Keep your Bible open. You go, okay, now where is that grid that you're talking about in humility? I didn't, didn't quite see it in there. Well, we have come to understand as we have looked uh, backwards with 2020 hindsight that this was a messianic 
entrance of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, unfolding a series of events that would culminate on Friday with the cross and then ultimately on Sunday with the resurrection. You say, a messianic what? The coming of Christ was referred to as the coming of the Messiah. Messiah and Christ are the same words, one's Hebrew, one's Greek, and they simply refer to the anointed one. In other words, God was going to send an anointed one, a savior type, that would redeem people. And so this was seen as the entrance of the Messiah into the city. And notice how he came. Uh, He came exactly as the prophets had foretold hundreds of years prior. Verse 5, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. Now that word gentle, praus, in the original language means humble. And it's an interesting thing that Matthew does here because the other gospel writers... Mark and Luke and John tell about Jesus's entry into the city, but none of them use this word. They use other words that talk about his being the son of God, about his being the Lord, about his being omnipotent. They use those kind of words. But Matthew is careful to go back and retrieve an Old Testament prophecy to show The way Jesus came into the town is exactly in fulfillment of the prophecy. And the prophecy said he would come humbly. He would come gently. That's also interesting that the other gospel writers never use that word. Because they had other purposes that they were trying to address in what was happening in the coming of Christ. But Matthew is peculiarly addressing a Jewish audience. And the fulfillment of prophecy was important to Jews. And the concepts that one finds in the Old Testament were important to Jews. So, for example, in the Old Testament, it was a common concept that the one who is a beholder of the promises of God is one who is humble. One who is a bearer, a carrier of the plans and the purposes of God is one who is humble. Matthew, in fact, uses this word three times. We translate it three different ways the three times he uses it in his gospel. The first time is in chapter 5. Does that ring a bell? We looked at that a few weeks ago when it talked about blessed are the... The word translated there is meek, but it's the same word, pros, meaning humble, for they shall inherit the earth. They are the bearer of the promise. They're the ones that are going to get to experience all the promises of God, all the things that God wants to do. And a little bit later, uh, Jesus will say, come to me, you that are weary, burdened, heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for I am Gentle, humble. So, what does that mean? As we've defined in here many times, that biblical sense of humility is where we make much of God and we make little of ourselves. That's what humility is all about. 
pride, just the opposite, where we make much of self and we make little of God. So what I'm suggesting to you here in this context is that when Palm Sunday began to unfold, the picture of humility is being displayed. Those that are a part of the entourage that are throwing down the cloaks and throwing down the branches and waving the palms and all this kind of stuff are in actuality not just praising, not just extolling and exalting, but are acting humbly. They are making much of Jesus, who, sitting on a simple, humble beast, not this great stallion of a great conqueror who's going to come in and overthrow a, a governmental power, but this humble servant of God and servant of people, so this passage reeks with humility, or at least the appearance of humility. Because you see, in five days, much of the crowd that was saying, Hosanna, which is a way of calling in Hebrew to God to come help. Much of the crowd on that day who was uh, calling Hosanna unto Jesus, which would be a... a a deified kind of reference to him, will join the chorus of crucify, crucify. Now, how can you move from Hosanna to crucify in five days? How does that happen? Unless the Hosanna was not about Jesus and was not about a humble extolling of him as the Messiah, the Christ. You say, well, what else could it be, Scott? Well, see if this rings true with you. It certainly rings true with me. Occasionally, I am very humbly positioning myself before God and calling out to God and, and wanting to follow after God, not to make much of him, but in effect to make much of myself. I want to be blessed. I want to have answered prayers. I want to see mighty things and mighty acts take place. And so in that very subtle flip, I can make the same gestures, the same exclamations, not about him, but about me. You get what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? The humble bear the promise. Unless they're beginning to make that promise all about themselves. The humble make much of God. Unless in their exclamations and in their extolling, they're really making it more about themselves. The proud think of self first. So when we say, how's life? One of those more substantive filters that need to pop up is, how's my humility? How's my heart toward making much of God? How much am I making life about me? But let's move on through the text and let's look at what followed that. As we get to verse 12, he's just had the triumphal entry. Got all the hosannas and the palms waving and everything, and he makes his way to the temple. Now, what is a temple? A temple is a place where people meet with 
God. It's a place where people worship God, uh, center their hearts on God, pray to God, right? It's that kind of place. So let's see what's going on here in chapter. And drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those that were selling doves. And it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of robbers. So immediately when Jesus comes into the town, he makes his way to the temple because he is all about the purpose of God. The minute he encounters what's going on in the temple, you know, he goes on tilt. It's like it cannot be this way. And with a holy indignation and a holy anger, he begins to cleanse the temple and drive out money changers and drive out the the merchandisers and so on like that. And you're going, well, good for him. What in the world were they doing there to begin with? Well, what they were doing there to begin with originally had been there to serve people. You see, if you're a pilgrim who comes to Jerusalem at Passover and you want to worship in the temple, you know, it's, it's a pretty difficult thing to travel long distances and carry the various animals that you might want to use in a sacrifice uh, in worship. And so one of the things that uh, began to develop and evolve, if you will, through time, is that in the courtyard around the temple, they began to have people who would sell you a dove or sell you some other kind of animal that you could use in the worship as a sacrifice. And because the temple would not take profane money like Roman currency, they had their own currency, temple coins. And you could come in and you could go to a money changer and you could give Roman money and they'd give you temple money. And then you could go in and make your offerings with the temple money. It was a service originally provided for people. But it had morphed, it had transformed into such a me thing that people were there all about profit. Forget about the worship of God. I want this much for that dove. And I'm going to charge you this much in a handler's fee to transact the change. And when Jesus saw that, being purpose-driven as he was, he immediately purged and cleansed the temple from that whole experience. When we start making the things of God more about us, we have departed the way of Jesus. What is the purpose of your house? You go, well, it's, it's about, well, let me make sure I get this right. Um, it, it's about having a place where in my living I honor and glorify God, make much of God. It's a place where uh, God allows me to extend his hospitality to other people. Great. What kind of house does God need for you to do that? Do those kinds of questions even come through the grid when you're making a move? Or is it about a show place? Is it about various kinds of perks 
and, and gadgets and gizmos and whatever that, you know, I just really would like to have. What's the purpose of your car? Your car as a follower of Christ. I know the purpose of a car is to transport. But a purpose of your car as a Christian, as a follower of God, is that that is a vehicle that is rendered unto his use. He gets to do whatever he wants to with the car that he lets me drive. So maybe he wants me to transport people on his behalf as they have a need. Maybe he wants this or that or the other. I loan it. I let other people have it and use it and so on. What kind of car does God need for those purposes to be accomplished? Does he need one? With all the bells and whistles? With all the glistening gleam? With the hefty price tag? Or could it be that he would have us in a lesser vehicle and whatever other money we would have spent on a greater vehicle is used for other purposes and causes, maybe for those that are without? You go, oh, Scott, don't turn a page and start making me guilty. I'm not. I'm just saying. If we have this grid, if we have this filter that says, how's life? Well, what's the humility line look like for me? What's the purpose line look like for me? Then life is assessed differently than otherwise. In the third place, we see this matter of fruit. In verse 18 through 22, it's an interesting episode as Jesus Early in the morning, walks along, he was on his way back to the city, and he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, the tree, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately, the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, <clears throat> if you, believe you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So, what in the world did we just witness? Jesus has launched into the city on Palm Sunday. Over the next succeeding days, different things begin to happen inside the city, inside the temple, just outside the city. And this is one of those where he's walking along with some of his followers. He sees the tree. And when the tree is not fruitful, it's not serving its purpose. You see how these are connected? Okay, if you're not going to bear fruit, it's over. You'll not bear fruit again. And the disciples are scratching their head and they're like, okay, I don't get what's that all about. And Jesus is making the point that if you're following me, if your life is in me and my life is in you, then you will bear fruit. And see, they just left the temple. Where in a place that was supposed to be fruitful for the purposes of God, it was barren. It was religious barrenness. He goes out and gives this little life object lesson and says, I will not tolerate religious 
barrenness. If you have faith, if you're connected to me, you will have fruit. So much so that mountains can be moved, which has always been a troublesome passage for a lot of Western, particularly English thinking people. And it's not so much that that God's wanting us to go out scouting for mountains that need to be moved and demonstrating faith. It's just an idiom. It's a way of saying something that only God can do will happen when you are a person of faith and prayer. And that will be a piece of fruit that is evident in your life that you're connected to me. That you live by faith and that extraordinary God things happen. And so there's our grid. There's our filter. Is there a faith in you and a connection thereby with Christ that is producing fruit that others can see and it draws attention to God? Back to humility. Barrenness reflects a lack of connection, a lack of life in Christ. Okay, well, help me here. What what are we talking about with fruit? What are we talking about with mountain moving stuff and so on? We could say a whole lot about this, and and I'm only going to say like a minute and a half's worth, and it's this. Primarily, you can see fruit in two significant arenas. One is with your character. So that you begin to have the fruit of the character of Christ. Because you're connected with Him, His life is in you, your faith is being exercised, and you become more loving. You become more generous. You become more forgiving and more quick to forgive. You become more uh, spiritually aware of the activities of God so that you can join Him in His purposes. And there is a fruit of what we would call conversions. Because of what God does in your life, other lives are drawn to Him through you. They see Christ in you and they're drawn to Christ that's in you. And out of those conversions, there are life transformations. And it raises the question, is anybody ever drawn to Christ because of you? Because of what God's doing in you? Because of what others can see Christ is doing in you? If I am not growing in character... And if I'm not growing in an influence that sees others' lives being transformed by Christ's power, then I've got a barren life. So when I ask the question, how's life, that grid, that filter pops up. How humble is God working in me right now? How purposeful is God working in me right now? How fruitful is God working in me right now? And we'll wrap it up with this thought, the thought of obedience. Picking up in verse 28, here Jesus is being challenged by some of the religious leaders, and they're like, so who do you think you are? By what authority do you say the things you say and you do the things you do? And Jesus said, you know what? I'll answer that question if you answer this question. John, the baptizer, was he of God or was he not of God? Well, guess what? The religious leaders did not want to answer that question. It wasn't because they didn't know. They didn't want to look dumb. But it was against their self-interest slash pride 
to acknowledge that John the baptizer was in fact a prophet of God because that meant if he's a legitimate prophet of God, then we ought to be bringing our lives into alignment with the teaching that he is bringing us from God. And not only were they not bringing their lives in alignment with the teachings of John from God, they were repudiating and rebuffing and persecuting and ultimately killing him. And so here's their answer. Uh, about John, uh, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to answer your question either. But I am going to tell you three stories. And in succession, he gave three parables, which are like stories from heaven. Stories with a heavenly meaning, even though they happen in an earthly context, right? And the first one was about a son, two sons, whose father came and said, I want you to go and do this. And the first son said, I'm not doing that. But later changed his mind, which the biblical word for that is repent. Later changed his mind and he did what his father asked. The second son said, when his father said, I want you to do this. The second son said, yes, sir. But then never did it. And so Jesus said, which of those obeyed the father? And, of course, a child can answer that question. The first one obeyed. And Jesus said, so here's what you need to understand as he's talking to these religious leaders. John came preaching repentance and how we need to turn our hearts to God. And guess who responded? Tax collectors and prostitutes, but not you. So I'm here to tell you. Tax collectors and prostitutes will get into heaven before you do because they ultimately said no, but yes. You said yes, but then no. Story number two. There was an owner of a vineyard who hired some tenants to work his field. And then he went off to a far country and said, uh, when you get a harvest, I'm coming back to get my produce and my, and my income. They worked the field. The owner sends some servants back to get his produce and his income. The tenants said, we don't want to give him what's due. And so they beat up one servant. They killed another servant. They stoned the third servant. And when the owner found that out, that that's how shamefully they had treated his servants, he sent his son. He said, son, go and get what is due me. The son now comes to the tenants of the vineyard. And says, I want what is due my father. And they killed him. Meaning, the owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is this world. The tenants are you and me. And we've been called by God to work his field, to work his world as he deems fit. And at certain times, he calls forth for us to give him what is due. And he sends servants to remind us of that. They're called prophets. They're called holy men. And through the years, they have been shamefully treated and even killed. And ultimately, he sent his son, who was shamefully treated and killed. And the parable goes on to say, God will not tolerate that kind of disobedience. Third story. Then he tells about a wedding feast. 
a father who was throwing a big party for his son who was about to get married, sent out invitations to everybody in town to come. Many said, you know, I don't have time. I'm too busy. Maybe another time, maybe another wedding. But, you know, I just can't fit this into my schedule. And he said, keep asking. Go around and ask other people. And so the servants went around and asked some other people. And they said yes. And they ended up coming to the wedding. When the father of the groom begins to walk around and mingle with the guest, he comes up on one guest who is not wearing a wedding garment, the kind of clothing that you would wear to a wedding. He said, who let you in here with a wedding garment? Get out. You stay out of my party with all those that said no if you can't come in here properly attired. You go, well, what in the world is all that? The father of the groom is God. The groom is Jesus. And he's talking about the wedding feast that will someday happen when the church is joined up with Jesus in heaven. Many people have been invited through his servants, the prophets, the preachers, the priests, and so on like that. And many have said no. Many have said yes. But when you say yes, you're also saying that you will allow the owner of the wedding feast to dress you properly. You will wear wedding garments into his party. You go, well, what are the wedding garments? That is a transformed life. You will allow him to so work in you, to so bear fruit in you, that your life will be changed, your life will be transformed, and you're welcomed into that party. That all happens out of this experience that we call Obedience. So, friends, if you are tracking with me and you understand now when we say, how's life? We're no longer just talking about, well, I'm kind of happy. I'm not too happy. Uh, I'm kind of successful. I'm not too successful. That kind of thing. We're, We're way beyond that if you're a follower of Christ. We now have this new grid, this new filter through which we assess and we evaluate how is life. All of that leads me then to ask, has there been any good news in what we've been talking about this morning? And you go, oops, I forgot to think about that along the way. Okay, let me think. Good news. Uh, I don't know. It all sounds kind of hard to me this morning. I, where was the good news in there? The good news is that there is a clear grid There's a clear system of filters that God has given us by which we can evaluate life. He is not playing games with us. He is not doing a little hide and seek and and guess game. And, you know, life is going to be really challenging, but I'm not going to tell you what the real rules of the game are. You know, just kind of get along in the dark and see the best way you can. He goes, no, here's how it is. I'm going to show you the way. And in the life and in the person of Jesus, he showed us the way. It's with humility. So run that grid. Run that filter in your mind. Do a a continuum like I do, scale of 1 to 10. Where am I on the pride, it's all about me, to the humility, it's all about God, scale at any given point? How is that today? In fact, why don't you do that right now? Why don't you just think of or write on your little program a number? Right now I'm at a five. Right now I'm at a seven. Whatever it is for you. Because the next question is this. How do you move that number 
one to the right. That's called growth. If I'm a five on the pride to humility scale, how do I make that a six? If I'm a six, how do I make that a seven? See, that's a life that's honoring God, that's headed in the right direction, doing the right thing. That purposeless to purposeful, as defined by God, purposeless is me doing my own thing. Purposeful is doing His thing. Where am I on that scale? You know, everything I have is about Him. Everything I do is about Him. It's all got purpose. Where are you on that scale? And then the matter of fruit less to fruit full. How's that character development? Are you more loving than you were a year ago? More patient than a year ago? More giving and generous than a year ago? More sacrificial than a year ago? More quick to forgive than a year ago? See? People being influenced about Christ and the purposes of God through you? Is that more today than it was a year ago? And then the matter of disobedience to obedience. How responsive am I to God? God says, do this, and I I do it. Am I more quick to say yes and follow through? Do I do the hard things? That he asked me to do. Am I faithful in the little things? I got all the way home before I counted the change. And I go back and take the change back. (laughs) So what will you do with what we talked about today? Will you repent and turn to Christ? I mean, if that step has not happened for you. Where you go, you know what? The way of Jesus is the way of life. I need to quit doing it disconnected from Him, and I need to do it connected. That's called repenting and turning to Him. Would you do that? If you you haven't done that, this could be a very, very important moment for you. Now, on the back side of your connection card, on the left-hand side, there's a line that says, I want to have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Is you know, it's not going to be a religious thing. It's not going to be a ritualistic thing. It's going to be a relational thing. I want to be connected to Jesus and have the life that He has. Will you consistently assess and evaluate your life? Not this superficial: Am I feeling happy right now or not? Am I feeling successful right now or not? But that more substantive, Christ-like. Evaluation of your life. Will you do that? I mean, for those of us that uh, understand how busted we are and we're doing a recovery program, we're like, this is every day. We have to do this every day. So do you. And then finally, would you repeat some bit of good news, whether it was the good news you got today, the good news you got last week when you hear one of Would you repeat one bit of good news to one other person? See, our Father has said, I want you to be a witness. Let people know and see what I'm doing in you. You had an answer prayer? Mention that to somebody. Has God been good and gracious to you? Mention that to somebody. 
Has God showed you something, given you some guidance, some kind of provision? Then tell somebody one bit of good news to one other person. Let's pray. So, Father, um, we're in that precarious zone now called stewardship. Once we know something, once we've heard from you, we're now accountable. We're now responsible about what you're saying. And, Father, uh, we sense, because you're humble and gentle yourself, you don't want us to be intimidated You don't want us to be fearful. You're not about manipulating us. You're just about showing us the way and empowering us to go in it. So I pray for every friend in the house and those listening to this later. Lord, give us your power. Give us your strength. Give us your grace to go in your way. In Christ's name, amen.